Welcome to the show, Jordan. Uh, I want to thank you for coming on and being willing to, you know, share your story and talk with me about some topics that I kind of want to jump into. Um, real quick, just for the listeners, tell me a little bit about your background. All right. Well, uh, I am a visual arts teacher as well as a, well, I'm a former actor and an illustrator. So I have a unique opportunity because I've been involved in the visual and performing arts for years. I got my formal education at Michigan State University. Uh, my bachelor's is in art education. I got a master's degree in art education from Eastern Michigan University. And recently in the last decade finalized a master's of fine arts in illustration from savannah college of art and design i've been doing artwork since i was 14 years old paid for it and and had uh freelance gigs and it's been a great opportunity because it's something that when i was young i didn't think i was going to be able to get paid for but to have that opportunity but also pass on that knowledge as an educator um, is incredibly valuable currently i work for uh, ogden school district i am a beverly taylor Sorensen arts learning program visual arts specialist that is a mouthful but basically it is a program in the state of utah that allows visual arts performing arts educators to push in to the elementary school classrooms and collaborate with the classroom teachers so that we can write curriculum so that the students can understand their core curriculum classes through a visual arts or performing arts spectrum. So for example, uh, if a student will come into my classroom and say a fifth grader is learning how to determine the different states of matter, solid, liquid, and gas, we'll create a composition that has different symbols that represent solid, liquid, and gas. And in the course of a uh, class period, the students will create a composition that represents those three things. And we'll talk to them about water. We'll talk to them about density. And they'll create something where the liquid water symbol will be on the bottom. The solid water symbol or ice will float on top. And then the water vapor symbol will be up on top. And that, and that creates a greater understanding for the students of these complex concepts. But we do it through the visual or performing arts spectrum. So it gives them a chance to integrate that knowledge a little bit more. Besides working for BTS or Beverly Taylor Sorensen Arts Learning Program, <laughs> all of that different stuff. Yeah. I, I use BTS as a, as a shorthand for oh, that. Oh, I totally get it. Yeah, it makes it easier. Less to uh, speak about. I also work as a curriculum writer for Young Art and Art Cadets, which is um, a company out of California, uh, which does online learning. And we partner with a number of different schools, a number of different uh, online learning programs to provide visual arts education for students all over the world. So I've had the opportunity to uh, teach classes in Nepal. I've been able to teach uh, students virtually through Oh, let's see here. Um, uh, Afghanistan, I've been able to uh, touch students visual, uh, virtually in a number of different countries throughout the world. It's been incredibly uh, beneficial, and I love doing it. It's a great job. Dude, that's awesome, man. Uh, how old are you? <laughs> I'm 46. Dude, that is quite the resume for a 46-year-old. I would expect that type of resume of 
uh, things done in education coming from someone in their 60s. So 46, you have literally run a gamut because when I first met you, I thought you were just teaching at a local high school, teaching high school art. That was correct. Yeah, I was and, teaching high school at that time. And now you are just... Well, I've, I've... How can I put this? I have a kind of unique uh, perspective on life. I personally do not believe in an afterlife. So I believe when we're here, that's it. That's all. Yeah, our energy goes back into the universe. Our body goes into the soil. Uh, I, I don't necessarily believe in the concept of an afterlife or a soul or anything like that. Our energy just gets redistributed back into uh, the universe. And I'm, I, I'm only here for a short time. And I want to do everything possible that I can. And I've realized long ago there are certain things that I'm better at than others. And uh, I very rarely say no to opportunities. And I very rarely have a day off. So in that, I, I try to get out there as much as possible and experience as much uh, that, that life has to offer. And my wife, Kimberly, um, gets very frustrated at how busy I usually am. And, uh, I totally understand that and makes perfect sense. But in that same regard, I just have this passion to go out and experience as much as possible because honestly, uh, I've known a lot of people that have passed away suddenly and I want to be able, I want people to be able to say, um, when, when I do leave this world that there was somebody who was there. He was active. He did everything. And part of the reason why I do education is I don't want this knowledge, this experience to go away. I want it to be shared, to grow and to continue. Yeah. yeah uh, you touched on uh, a couple things I kind of want to elaborate on. And one is never turn down opportunity. I'm kind of the same way. I'm always, if I got an opportunity to do something, I'm going for it. Like unless some crazy outside thing happens, I want to do whatever it is I can do to not only better myself, but to have life experiences. Mm -hmm. Like, and I think you're right, so many people pass up these experiences or these opportunities. Um, and then the other thing you're saying is, you know, life's short and you can die like that. I don't think people realize, like, so I just got back from a business trip to Texas. Before I left, I seen this coworker, and he was going to be covering uh, my workload while I was gone. Talks to me and he tells me, you know, I've always thought very highly of you. I think you do a great job for this organization. We'll see you when you get back. Saturday, while I was down in Texas, I learned he passed away. Wow. And I am just like, I just talked to this guy mm -hmm. on Tuesday. He seemed totally fine. Yep. Died of a heart attack on Saturday. Um and it to it's speaking to what you're saying is you never know. And um, I'm kind of like you. I don't believe in the concept of an afterlife. I think that energy may transfer, go somewhere else, kind of like matter. You can't mm -hmm. destroy it. Yes. So like with energy, but the whole concept of the afterlife, you know, seeing your family in heaven and things, that's a far stretch for me. So I'm I'm like you live every day to the fullest. Mm -hmm and try and experience everything. And sometimes I don't even want afterlife to exist mm -hmm. in that form. Yes. And, I, and people are always like, why? I'm like, 
that's an eternity. That scares me. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, maybe I'll eventually get bored and then I can't there's, check there's, out. There's something very comforting about the idea. And, and I know some people are very comforted by the idea of eternity, eternal happiness, that kind of thing. But I, I see it as more, and when I say it, I mean existence, life, uh, more through a Taoist philosophy. The idea that you must have rain to appreciate a sunny day there there is nothing that in invokes the thankfulness of health that when you're like sick as a dog and can't breathe through your nose or anything like that you need to have those experiences of of misery of frustration of torment to appreciate those times where you have joy when you have pleasure when you have passion because without the good you can't really appreciate uh, having such wonderful aspects of life coming in and i know life is different for everyone there are people with uh, chronic pain there are people with with illness the illnesses that are debilitating every single aspect of their life and i'm i'm not discounting what they experience and what they go through but i think the grand majority of people in the world always wish for something better and want for something better and take for granted a good deal of what they have in life and existence. Oh yeah, 100%. I, um, I'm in this weird section in my life right now where I've come to uh, realize, so my father, yesterday Thanksgiving, go grab my father, take him over to my sister's place, and he gets out of my car and he falls, he trips and falls. He's 67, he's um, he lived his life in a way that probably is catching up to him now. And to see my dad as being that vulnerable as an aged adult and to see his, um, how he doesn't want to accept that, it, it just puts into perspective that you need to be grateful for everything you have and also do what you can to take care of yourself. Very so true. when you do uh, begin to age and get ailments that they're they're more controlled because I want to go through life living every day the best I can and preparing every day because I, I know that things can hit you health wise one way or the other very true but I look at my dad in his late 60s and I'm like I still want to be hiking in my late 60s mm -hmm. and exploring yes he through faults of his own has progressed his aging process mm -hmm. And to see the regret that he goes through with that, I'm just like, oh God, I, I can't do that. I always tell everyone that I've, I've learned lessons on how not to live life through watching my parents. Well, it, it's, it's also different for different people. Like I, I know a good deal of people that do not regret the transgressions of their youth at all. They're like, I did every drug known to man <laughs> and my body is terrible now, but I had a great time during my twenties and thirties, you know, and, and there are people that, that straight up don't regret it. This live fast, die young mentality. Um, and, you know, I don't fault them necessarily for that. Um, I'm not going to say there's someone who went to art college that I did not experience any type of narcotic. <laughs> it's, not a, yeah. it's not the truth. But there's also this concept of as you get older, 
you get a greater understanding of what your body is capable of and you get a greater understanding of your limits. So it is a rarity now that I will drink to excess to the point where I have a hangover the next day. I'll usually go to a point where like I've had a few and I'm like, yep, I'm good right now. That's, that's going to be the extent of it. And, uh, you know, there are times when I'm like, today is a good day for a cigar, you know, little things like that, but definitely in moderation. And I think, and speaking as an old person, uh, <laughs> the idea that, you know, that, that type of knowledge of moderation comes with, with practice and dipping your toe into the water rather than jumping full bore into something where, and, and every type of chemical enhancement of the body, whether it is drugs, whether it is alcohol, whether it is uh, nicotine, it does not matter. All of them alter your body in some way. And how much you choose to take is always going to be how your brain is affected by it. And the more you take, the more your brain is affected by it. And there are some people out there, I am fortunate enough to not possess this, but there are a good deal of people out there who their brains are wired for addiction and a small amount will be, will be a heavy burden upon them. I am fortunate enough that that is not the case. Yeah. And I, I sit on the other end of the spectrum with that, that my brain was totally wired for it. And it, it took a while for me to even come to uh, grip the reality that you are an addictive personality, Marcus, and you have let one substance, alcohol was my advice, mm -hmm dictate and control your mid to late 20s way too much and that's when I had to come to the realization that I can't have this in my life anymore and I had to go sober um and like I don't like some some people who have that kind of put themselves on pedestals and like will compare themselves to other people that do still partake in drugs alcohol whatever I never did that I'm just like I'm the person that cannot I know I cannot handle it and people have asked me because I've been sober now like two and a half, almost three years. And people are like, well, do you ever think you could go back? I'm like, no, I know myself. <laughs> that's that's the important thing though, is is getting able to know your own limits and your own joys and your own and I think a lot of people struggle with that. And a lot a lot of folks also use any type of narcotic as an escapism. And I think that is especially true with our, um, our homeless and veteran population where uh, those that are not willing to seek help because a lot of the, a lot of the places that offer food and housing services and that kind of thing, you need to be sober to use them. To utilize them and i think there's a lot of people out there who utilize it as an escapism from their day-to-day -day. and rather than finding assistance moving forward and and being better it's a way for them to say i'm going to avoid reality because i'm going to be in this haze or this stupor and it's it's really frustrating because uh, my my wife and i I won't say that we volunteer regularly. Um, it, uh, that would be a lie. But we do spend some of our time at uh, food banks as well as uh, homeless shelters helping out periodically. 
and it helps really put things in perspective um, to see uh, your fellow human beings and make you appreciate for what you have, but also see people as people. And I think way too often, a good deal of us, because we are not extending our hands in that fashion, we don't, we have this concept of other. And the other for a lot of folks is uh, maligned is different. You, you want to avoid, you want to stay away because you're not comfortable around them. But we need that. We need to have that uncomfortableness. Oh yeah. Lives. I could, I couldn't agree more. There was a, a time about three years ago, I, cause I was, I always use my hobby of photography to help me experience the world in a better light and better view. And I was doing a, uh, a project. I would do one project a month utilizing photography. And one of the months I did, I would go down to, um, like Liberty park in Salt Lake city and I would photograph homeless people down there and I would photograph not in the traditional like street style where you're getting shots of people without them, without their knowledge. Yeah, I would yeah. go up to them and mm -hmm. say, Hey, would you mind if I took your portrait mm -hmm. and then talk to them about their story? And I think when you get down there on the level with people mm -hmm. and some of them were granted of a very fragile mental state, oh, yeah. some of them were, uh, very, um, addicted to substances and things of that nature. But then when you really get to the root of these people, you start to see that because I think people have this disconnect and they think I would never be homeless. And it's like <laughs> you're not too many steps away from being right where they are. Many of us are one or two paychecks away. Exactly. From that experience. Exactly. Uh, I, I ran into a period of my life when... Uh, when we first moved to Utah, when my family first moved to Utah, my daughter was two at the, at the time. My, my son was five. And we lived with my sister-in-law because extenuating circumstances happened in Michigan that caused me to lose my job. And this was during the middle of the school year. And for those of you who are not in education, it is impossible to find a teaching job in say January or uh, November, it is it's very challenging at that point in the year. So it was one of those things we decided. Okay, we're going to move out to to Utah. We're going to stay with family for a little while because I was living in Michigan at the time, and to live in someone else's basement on their goodwill on a an inflatable mattress with four people in one room um, being cold at night and having that mattress slowly deflate over the course of the evening because everybody's on the same one and it's it's got a hole that you can't find for no good reason. It's, it's, it is a humbling experience, um, but it was incredibly valuable as well to have that experience and go, okay, if, if we can move past this and we can bounce back from this, we we will be in a much better place. We will be stronger as a family. We will be uh, stronger as as individuals, as a group, that kind of thing. I, I, and I'm not downplaying anyone's challenges with this because challenges are different for everyone. 
everyone will experiences challenge, experience challenges differently. But I think like going back to that Taoist philosophy, we all need those times so that we can rise up past adversity and be better as human beings. Oh yeah. I, th I think you see that with people who have been, um, born into money and born into situations where they don't have a lot of that struggle. Um, they, I don't think they appreciate where they're at as much. Maybe they do. I've, I've never sat in a life like that, mm -hmm. but I tend to think that the more success you, you're born into, the more you're kind of just used to having things. I, I think it would take a good deal of effort from parents of, uh, of children who were born into affluence to give their children that experience so that they understand and can appreciate you never appre you never can appreciate something until you do not have it you you can't automatically be going oh man you know i'm really thankful for uh this roof over my head and the fact that i have heating until you say go camping and be in a tent for a little while and or sleep out under the stars and then it starts raining and you have no shelters and you you need that adversity to appreciate what you have yeah i i couldn't agree more um we were uh on a hiking trip we did a uh backpacking trip in the hyuenas just recently over the summer and we did king's peak and that's a good distance in i think we had hiked about 10 miles in from the nearest road it's and pretty when, serious yeah yeah when you're in that environment mm -hmm. and you we got rained on like a storm came through and everything and all the comforts of modern society <laughs> and what your home provides you are yes. gone yes. i was like in freak out mode i was like we're gonna die up here <laughs> we're gonna get hypothermic <laughs> we're screwed but once once we once i calmed down mm -hmm. It was like, okay, we can do this. Yeah. We can make this work. We we have the gear and stuff like that. And yeah, I, th I think that's totally right. Um, just people, I think people have a hard time as seeing other people's struggles and relating to them. And I think people have a hard time as actually treating people as people nowadays. Like it can be difficult. Uh, I, I, our our echo chambers of social media um, cause big problems with that. But you, you you use the pronoun we a lot in that anecdote. And I think that's something that is incredibly value, valuable that we don't really put forth enough. Uh, our challenge, we are we are a societal creature human beings need other human beings to survive especially the intricacies of our systems now where uh all of our water is filtered all of our you know it, all of our electrical grid and everything like that are operated by who knows how many people and our jobs are incredibly specialized for each of us any adversity that we have is easier because we are a societal creature to deal with other people. Uh, this this idea of, you know, he's a lone wolf. He's not going to be with anybody else. And he sits at the back of the bar. And, you know, it's all of that concept is complete and utter crap because we need other people to survive. We need 
to have this 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 group mentality so that when we face adversity there will be other people to lift us up i i know for a fact that i would not be able to be in the position that i am in and have all of these experiences that that you cited earlier if i didn't have the support of my wife and children at home that if it was just me floating around the cosmos with none of that support, it would be incredibly difficult. And it doesn't have to be from a spouse. It doesn't have to be from children. It can be from uh, a, a circle of friends. It can be from a, uh, a parent or, or even co-workers. It, it, but there needs to be that support structure for people to attain things. I mean, we hear the term self-made man over and over again, or, you know, these 30 under 30 people. And Whenever I see that kind of thing, I'm like, all right, what type of social and emotional support structure do these people have to allow them to be able to do these amazing things? Yeah, no, you're, you hit it. I mean, the importance of a social uh, circle around you is so important. Um, it's kind of funny. Uh, I was watching, I don't watch a lot of TV anymore, but I found myself watching this alone show. Mm -hmm. Um, it basically, they take people from various backgrounds that are all knowledgeable in survival and they put them out in isolation. Mm -hmm. And the one guy that I thought was going to last was this Navy SEAL. He was, and he was like, oh, I got this. It's, mm -hmm. I've been through all this training. And the thing that made him his downfall rather quickly was the lack of social um, interaction. And you see how that is probably the hardest thing for all those people when they're put out alone. It's not making the fire, it's not doing this, it's what happens when you don't have interaction with mm -hmm. humans. And then I think nowadays in society, we're almost uh, socially distancing. We, we're very open socially on social media, but we're socially distancing in our own world. For instance, people always get annoyed with me because I hate text messaging. Mm -hmm. I just, it drives me nuts. Call me. I want to have mm -hmm. a phone conversation with you. I want to talk with the people individual. Don't do that now. <laughs> they don't. It's, they almost get anxiety over oh, it. Oh, 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 I know some people who definitely get anxiety over it. The idea of, of speaking to another person on a device or, you know, you can just text me. It's so much easier. Um, it, it's it's one of those things. I, I, I think technology has made things easier and much more difficult in different ways for different people. Um, this is especially true with our young people nowadays. God, that makes me sound old. Um, yeah, you know, uh, with, but I see, I see it happen a lot, especially since we are uh, post uh, the heavy part of the pandemic here that there are a number of kids, students, who a lot of their interactions with other people outside of their immediate family, if they get contact outside of their, if they get contact with their immediate family, because sometimes oh, yeah. that doesn't happen, uh, is all online. It's all virtual. It's, it's through devices and that kind of thing. And, uh, and I'm not saying it has to be something like uh, a, a sport endeavor because that's not going to be for everybody. Goodness knows it wasn't for me. <laughs> but um, but it also is something where there needs to be a social interaction that kids are experiencing when they are looking at someone face-to-face. -face. 
there is a huge disconnect right now in elementary and junior high schools of students uh, in what is known as social and emotional intelligence. And it's this idea of being able to get along with other people, being able to make eye contact, being able to make a story not about you rambling, as I'm rambling, but but being able to do a back and forth conversation where you are actually listening to the other person, responding and building up the conversation, letting it flow organically, rather than a word salad that is coming out of your mouth and then stopping and it's like, okay, it's now your turn to talk and I'm talking at you and you're talking at me and then there really isn't an emotional connection that's happening there. So one of the things that educators are trying to do specifically now, especially at the elementary and junior high school levels, is to engage students more so that they understand the social and emotional experiences so that they can become, I don't want to use the term productive members of society, but just understand their place in society and how they can become more adjusted to the world around them rather than just kind of dissipate into devices. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. There's, um, it's, I always hate saying this because it, I sound like one of the old people, but it's amazing because I've been working in education now for 11 years. You've been working in education for 23, 23. Yeah. And just, so you have probably seen a vast difference and I've seen one where how much kids have changed from when I first started to now. Mm -hmm. It is night and day. It, especially in the last few years, the the years leading up to the pandemic and then the pandemic itself has, has changed a lot. But one of the things that I noticed specifically in education beforehand, when I got to kind of the 10, 15 year mark is this concept of uh, a pendulum philosophy in education. The idea that if you are in a district or with a group of people long enough, this idea will start on one side and then it will slowly shift to the other in philosophy, in um, practice, in, you know, in what you're focusing on. Right now we're in the social and emotional intelligence range. Eventually, what will happen? I'm not saying that it's going to be this week. It might be further down the line, but then eventually, what will happen is they'll shift back and go, "Oh, we got to focus on test scores again. We've got to, you know, we've got to make sure that our test scores are high. You know, that that needs to be the priority." So, and it might change due to an administrator coming in. It might be a department head. It might be down from the superintendent or something like that. But this, it, it does go through kind of a pendulum motion where it shifts from one to the other back and forth. And anyone who's been in education for a really long time has observed this, this idea that it just shifts. And it's not that one is bad or one is good, but it, it just changes the focus of what you're working on. And... I'm interested in seeing how that affects the generational changes in 
students that go through, say, a school district. So you've got, you know, a, a, an older sibling who maybe ha is 10 years older because this is Utah that, you know, you might have huge families uh, where they were focusing on social and emotional intelligences. And then at a certain point, like maybe the, the younger kid down the road is now all concerned about test scores. So they really kind of drill into the kid. We need to learn about science, mathematics, so, uh, social sciences, that kind of thing. So it's, it, it's interesting to me that we go through these changes and it can affect uh, generations of kids. Oh, yeah. No, I think you're totally right. What what? So you started art, you said at 14 is when you dove into art. Yes. That's kind of uh, about the age that I think, because me, I'm thinking about like when I got into music and stuff, it was 13, 14. So that's mm -hmm. when I feel that a lot of... Uh, up and coming youth kind of start to find their artistic or their their interests, yes. their true interests. Oh, definitely. Um, from being a fourteen year old artist to getting into education with art, was that your goal, or did you just kind of fall into it? No. Well, all right. I uh, my mother uh, was an elementary school principal. She is currently retired. She was an elementary school teacher. So I grew up in a household with teachers. My dad was a teacher of uh, photography as well as mathematics until he got laid off. And then he joined the corporate workforce and worked for HR as a training director. So he became a corporate teacher, basically. You know, so they, so they, they both were of that mentality. I knew that that was something that I understood because it was a way, because I went to activities at my mom's school. I went over there and either volunteered or hung out in her office as she had to get work done or something along those lines. So it was it was something that was there. But it's it's the equivalency of in the middle in the middle ages of say a uh, a son of a blacksmith, you know, when the when the forge is next to their house, you understand that job because you're exposed to it directly. The difference with that was I loved uh, comics and comic books as a kid, and I, and I wrote a number of comic strips. None of them were good, but I wrote a number of them uh, because you have to make terrible art before you can make good art. And when I started going to high school as a freshman, my teacher at the time got an opportunity from a local, like, uh, I want to say it was the Rotary Club. It was the basically group of, of local people. And they wanted a series of ink drawings of houses in the area. So basically you would go to a location, you would draw the house, and then it would give, they would give that image to these people. And then for some reason or another, I forget the exact reason, but I was in, I think, like a second tier drawing class. You know, they do drawing one and drawing two and, and that kind of thing. It was the tail end of my freshman year. I had taken drawing one. I was now in drawing two. And he basically said, you know, they're looking for people to do this. Who's interested? I went, okay. I, you know, what, we get paid for drawing something? Okay, I'm in. Yeah. And nobody else wanted to do it. <laughs> Well, here, go, here it goes back to you not po uh, passing up opportunity. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, and I think part of it was with that specifically, um, it wasn't because I thought I was 
better than anyone. It was more of the, hey, I'm, you can get paid for doing this thing that you're interested in. Go ahead and do it. And then once that happened, I started becoming more confident. And, you know, it was it was 50 bucks to a kid in 1992. So, I mean, it was like, it was, it was a good deal of money for me back then, but it more reinforced the idea of, yeah, people think you're pretty good. You can go ahead and do this. And it was nice for a beginning start, uh, for, for that encouragement. But what was what was better later on was the amount of rejection that happened over time because there is an ungodly amount of rejection in both the visual arts world as well as uh, uh, theater film. And I had the opportunity when I was living in Michigan to work during the film incentives that were there. And I applied and, and tried out for a ton of different film projects and, and movies and, and that kind of thing. I got some of them. Nothing you've ever seen, uh, <laughs> but but it was one of those things that uh, it it grew adversity. It grew out of that continuous failure and that continuous like okay that that didn't happen, so we're gonna move on to the next thing. We're gonna try something else, and the the idea that you can just let it roll off your back and move on to the next thing because so much of the visual arts world as well as the acting world is just grabbing a handful of darts and chucking them at a wall and if one of them hits on the dartboard that's great but you can't just go one at a time and put all of your focus into it because there will be this gigantic fan that turns on for no good reason to shove it to the side because Everything that you do in those two skill sets are arbitrary based off of the person that is uh, looking at your stuff. And it might be a complete act of luck that your stuff is chosen for some kind of thing, whether that is an actor in a film role, whether it is, you know, you get your piece into a show or something like that. It, it's funny because uh, just a little while ago, um, I applied and I actually forgot that I had applied to a mural that was um, that is happening currently at the uh, Discovery Gateway Children's Museum in Salt Lake. I forgot that I applied to it. I sent them a whole bunch. I saw that they were, you know, doing a call. I sent them a whole bunch of stuff, gave them, gave them a quote. And, you know, that was pretty much it. And I get contacted maybe about a month ago at this point and they say we would really like you to do your uh do a mural for us up in this area we thought your stuff was kind of creepy for working with kids and, <laughs> and it's and it's interesting because yes i work with children but the grand majority of my personal art is a lot more dark and kind of creepy and and that kind of thing and people always go you work with kids i'm like yes because the artwork is an escapism uh, and, and not that I'm saying that not working with kids is great, but when you're you're doing this visual aspect with young kids, your personal work needs to change. It needs to be different. So they have this um, they have this two story 
tall area that they want me to do a mural for that is next to their bee, uh, beehive uh, section where students learn about making of honey, how bees interact socially, that kind of thing. So it's, once again, the crossover between art and uh, science. It's uh, amazing. But they, take a, they took a look at one of the pieces that I submitted, which was a honeybee on top of a whole bunch of hexagonal whiskey glasses because it was a rethinking of an uh, of an advertisement for honey whiskey specifically and they pulled it out when we're talking and i go oh okay so so you want to do the hive you want to do a number of bees we're going to have it go back into space that's great i'll leave the whiskey glasses out and both of them stopped for a moment the two women that i was speaking to the, the ones they go wait that those are Oh, and they finally realized that they were whiskey glasses there. And they're like, oh, we, we did not realize that. And you never know who's going to be looking at your art and what capacity they're going to be understanding it and comprehending it. And what they, they saw that as being like, this type of thing is perfect to put over with the students, uh, where the students will be learning about honey, uh, will be learning about honey, will be learning about bees, social interactions, insects, all of that different thing. But they never made that connection, even though the piece was titled "Honey Whiskey." <laughs> <laughs> I don't think they made that connection. They just looked at the visuals. But uh, they also said, when speaking to me, um, a lot of your stuff is really dark, and we almost didn't call you in. You never know what, what that's going to be. It's a complete random crapshoot. So the more darts you throw, the better your chances are of getting something, sometimes through just dumb luck. Oh, yeah. I, you know, there's, I've had my stuff picked up for little ad campaigns and things before through, like you say, dumb luck. Like somebody was going through the hashtags on Instagram. They happened to sit on the Salt Lake County Art Council and they seen a picture I took of Magna Main and they were like, this would look really good as banners on Magna Main. So they contacted me and I'm like, well, if I would have never used that hashtag, you know, and because my Instagram is kind of like a conglomeration of everything I take pictures of where some people are just like strictly landscapes, strictly portraits. I'm like, no, there's landscapes, portraits, horror, creepy, <laughs> all that. It's like a, people are always like kind of amazed. Like you take all these types of photos? Yes, I'm like, yeah, yes. I dive out there and do everything. I'm, I'm not a one trick pony. No. You, know, you got <laughs> to change things up. But yeah, I, I agree with you. It's, it's, I, I have actually distanced myself from a lot of social media because um, you, you may have a different experience with Instagram than I do, but I, I will put something up that I spend hours upon hours working on like a painting or an illustration or something like that. And three people will see it. And then I will see something where, uh, a, this is going to make me sound so old, but, but there will be a young woman who is dressed in cosplay rather scantily and she will be basically lip syncing a stand-up comedy routine that somebody else wrote that she's not giving that person credit for and it will be thousands upon thousands of likes the, i could get on a soapbox with this <laughs> because i am one of those when i first got on the instagram platform <clears throat> way back when it first launched like 2011 mm -hmm. 2012 it was a platform for artists yes it was a platform for primarily geared towards photographers but mm -hmm. other art yes. was 
able to make their um, way into that platform. Now it is an art. It's a platform <clears throat> for influencers. Yes. And advertisements. That's all it is. And and because of the popularity of TikTok, uh, Instagram Reels have become a thing. And a lot of the Instagram Reels are just rehashes of TikToks and going through that. And at a certain point, I went, okay, I could either put a lot of effort into marketing my stuff on Instagram or uh Facebook or uh, Snapchat or whatever type of social media is popular this week because we have had a number of social medias that have come and gone and shift and change and everything like that and I'm just kind of done with it. Mm -hmm. I, I got to the point now where I'm going to, I'm, I've got my website. I am going to keep my website up www.jordancbrun.com uh, but I'm going to put all of the the artwork that I think is quality up there and I'm going to leave it just there and not try to push it through social media just I I got really tired of the fact that it is very surface that the the interactions that I experienced were were not deep it was like some people you know clicking on a like and leaving it at that there was very, and I, I, I gave it a good shot. Like I did a number of months where I would be like, Hey, if you like this particular piece and I'll do a drawing at the end of the month. And if it's been liked us a, a certain number of times, I'll pick somebody and I'll do an eight by 10 original work for them or you in a print or something along those lines. I tried that for the longest time and it didn't generate anything new or interesting. And so at a certain point, I was like, no, I'm going to move on. I'm going to try something else. And uh, I'm still on these social media platforms. Um, but I cannot tell you at this point how thankful I am that I have uh, distanced myself from a number of them, but most specifically Twitter slash X or whatever, you know, whatever it's called now. Mm -hmm. um, they seem very temporary. They seem very surface. And I, I want interaction with with people who see my artwork to be deeper than that. And nothing is is deeper or more rewarding when you do art shows and people come up to you and like one of my one of my favorite uh, experiences that I've had um, at an art show is uh, a, a guy who this was during oh, this was before pandemic. This was um, during urban arts festival in salt lake city and they usually hold it in august or september around that time and it's very much you know hip-hop counterculture kind of thing and i had a dude come up who was high to the nines he was all over the place and he just kept walking throughout my garish series just staring at them and Eventually, he like turned to me, and here I am, just like button-down shirt, um, uh, cargo shorts, and you know, I'm, he expected me to be like covered in tattoos, black, you know, you know, just, like, <laughs> all of this stuff. Looks at me and goes, and and goes, dude, these are dope as fuck. <laughs> <laughs> and he just like stretched out the curse as long as he possibly could, 
And I just went, thank you. And he goes right back to it. And he was there for like a good 20 minutes. He didn't talk to me outside of that one commentary. And I'm like, that's, that's what this is about. That's more than like, I'm going to press a button and get a like. I wholeheartedly, the art shows that I've done, those have been my best experience from gaining actual, I'm not going to say, the only word I can use is followers yeah. because they, then they do follow me on social media and make comments and stuff. But you get that very organic, real conversation about your work, real appreciation when they buy it. And there's nothing better than totally. when someone sees your work, loves it and purchases it oh. and walks off just happy as all get out. There's there's that. And then there is also that experience. I don't know if, if you've gone through this uh, as well, but... Um, my wife works in the automotive industry. She is uh, a parts uh, retailer for Chevrolet. Um, but she used to work uh, in collisions. And she told me one day, she was like, we got a car in today. I'm like, okay, yeah, you, you get cars in every day. What, what's special about this? She was like, one of your stickers was in the window. And I'm like, in, and you know who you sell, sell stuff to in shows like that, but it's something else entirely to see it in the wild, you know, just to, just to see it out there. And that little thing is nice. That is that, so cool. That little, that little reward that happens with it, that you see it periodically. Or, or if you, um, if you see it mass printed or something like that, um, as long as you have a hand in it, because I've had the other end of the spectrum as well, where my pieces were, or I should say a piece, a piece, uh, was actually stolen and not, not, I've had pieces physically stolen. I've had that happen as well. Not from, uh, uh from, from a gallery showing. Um, but also I had a digital piece that was taken from online and used in a video without my consent. And that took a little legwork uh, to track the people who made it down and uh, get a cease and desist up and running. I had one which made me utterly happy and utterly disgusted. Mm -hmm. A local company here used one of mine on a billboard on I-15. Really? Yeah. Really? And did not credit you? Didn't did not credit me, him? did not pay me. Wow. Had reached out to me about the piece in a way that it sounded like they were going to use it very just we're gonna use this like not in a big deal way mm -hmm. you know yeah and so of course i just said okay that's fine just mm -hmm. credit me yeah well when i seen where they used it and what they used it for and i'm not gonna name the company yeah, or anything yeah. like that i was just like huh lesson learned yeah because i did give them permission so there's yeah. no legal recourse that i can go through but mm -hmm. if you guys would have told me you were going to use it for that type of marketing campaign i would have and wanted prolific. money yeah oh yeah definitely like it sounded like you guys were going to just use it as a like a plaster on the side of your building or something which was one thing but yes. you're using it for this it's generating tons of revenue for yeah. you yeah and it was cool because i was like wow i shot that yeah but at the same time i was like motherfuckers <laughs> yeah no doubt well also you know there's there's this terrible bit about the idea of like oh you're doing it for the exposure i can't eat exposure i can't clothe my kids with exposure you know there's pay the artists and and thankfully um just recently in the time of this recording um the sag aftra strike is pretty much done because that was something that 
and I know a lot of people will will look at SAG after and go, well, actors get paid a ton of money. Why why would I care if you know they're striking or something like that? Only the people that you only hear about the actors that get paid oodles of money, the huge amount, like the the Tom Cruises and whatnot, who get paid millions of dollars. Um, what what they're not telling you is that basically a number of these actors were who maybe background characters or something along those lines were in talks specifically for um, their likenesses to be used in perpetuity. So basically their faces could be scanned and then digitally remastered so that, say, if you were a background extra in one film, they could digitally add you without paying you into something else and use your, use your likeness in perpetuity until, you know, until your death and beyond. And that's incredibly suspect. And, yeah. Uh, there, there is this trend in the corporate art world, I would say, or the benefits of art from the corporations that I, I've been trying to sound the alarm on this forever on my little soapbox of because mm -hmm. like yes. Adobe, mm -hmm. I hate Adobe, mm. I hate Adobe Photoshop. I know a lot of people love it, but they did some shady shit in the background using utilizing. Uh, when they have, because no longer they have program that you just install on your oh, computer. Yeah. You're, you're using them as like a cloud-based service. That's how you're accessing the product oh, and everything. Oh yeah, yeah. You don't buy the disc anymore. It is, it is definitely now a subscription service because everybody's making money with subscription services now rather than physical media. Yeah, and it really blew up in the photography community. And from my understanding is they in their end user agreement that no one reads because they're 5 million pages long yeah and and that's intentionally vague yep full of legal babble um they had you basically signed your rights away to your photography when you were using their product mm. and now they have taken so many photographers photography and back engineered their AI to study and analyze all this stuff. Yeah. And now it's coming back against the photographers. So going back to like Instagram and yeah. these sites that highly infuriates me is when someone will send me a photo mm -hmm. and they're like, look at this photo. It's so beautiful. I'm like, that's not a photo. No, no. It's that's not. an AI generated image that has learned over years of studying photography how to make these images and not and, make them well <laughs> but they're getting the scary thing is they're getting better and better and i just hate it because i'm like it's it's putting true photography true artists true everything we're now not just um competing with the masses of people for <laughs> Our art to get looked at but yes. you are now competing against someone on a computer who types a prompt into mm -hmm. a box that says make me a shot of a road and some trees and a storm and yeah. bloop like that and yep. it's like what the hell yeah um it's it's ai in general and and you can make the argument that the because text takes less memory than imagery or video files and, and that kind of thing that 
this type of AI. And I'm you, you can't see this, but after every time that I say AI, imagine that I am putting my fingers up in the air like doing little quotes because it's not intelligence by any stretch of the imagination. It is a randomization act of putting, of cobbling things together like Frankenstein to create this new thing that often looks pretty janky, uh, at least in prior versions that, that I have seen. And it's the same thing. The same thing holds true for, for text. The same thing holds true for video files and, and all of this. We're just seeing it now at the visualization stage. Um, and, it's, it's funny because every new media that has ever existed, whether it is the printing press, whether it is cave paintings, whether it is sculpture, it doesn't matter. The first thing that makes it run rampant is pornography. Every media. And right now, a lot of actor, actresses specifically are having incredible difficulty with their likenesses being used with other people's bodies for pornography. Ah, that I so like the deep fake stuff where they kind of I've seen it with like news characters and things like that. It's running rampant and it's becoming really problematic uh, in in some circles that I've read. And uh, from what I understand, also uh, a company recently has been sued and then relinquished. Uh, a bit from uh, of of AI quote marks yet again um, of Scarlett Johansson's likeness being used to promote their AI and then basically in that advertisement saying you know this, this I am not really Scarlett Johansson I am an AI directive but you think that it is me speaking about this AI program kind of thing and it's it's becoming incredibly pro- prolific and like images from before that people could just you know theoretically right click and take somebody's image from online with without any worry uh ai programs are now doing that with visual arts they're doing it with actors likenesses they're doing it with all of these different ways to basically rob people of things that would be original for them whether it is you know, their own likeness and all of the work that goes into making them famous or, you know, making them a skilled actor and, or, you know, painting a piece or, uh, waiting outside for hours to get just the right shot with just the right lighting with photography. And it is very much a wild west kind of in situation. And it's frustrating, but I'm reminded of specifically companies and corporations who will always try to shirk artists regardless of the situation you might remember in it was probably late 90s early 2000s we went from hand-drawn animation starting and it started to become more and more uh digital animation from all of these companies and all of the companies that used to do hand-drawn animation were starting to switch to digital well that's because digital came to the point where it was a more viable option to to work uh as a film media once toy story got on the scene it was like oh we can do this now and the current work contracts that were present were only for hand-drawn animation 
So the contracts with less money for the for the artists as well as uh, less benefits and less rights for the artists, all of the production houses started going to digital animation because they didn't have to pay their artists as much. They didn't have to pay uh, all, all of those in instances. People will find ways to make money off of artists because, and I say artists in a broad sense, yeah. actors, photographers, uh, visual artists, animators, all, all, all of the different groups, because there is a passion behind it the the need to create and that need to create is wired in the brain in a different sense than the need to make money and the need to you know find loopholes and contracts and that kind of thing it is a completely different pathway in the brain in regards to uh, what neurons are being used and in what capacity. So you find some artists who are very good at marketing themselves, who are incredibly skilled at gaming the system to get a ton of money, or they just luck into it and they have a patron or something along those lines to make, uh, make themselves famous. But the grand majority of it, it's not the same neural pathway. Mm -hmm. And so unfortunately, a lot of artists lose out on that opportunity. And it, it, comes into play like uh, NFTs for a while there, non-fungible tokens. I had a number of, of other artists and students that were approached by um, people who worked for digital companies or financial institutions or something like that. And they're like, here's a little bit of money, make us an NFT. You know, it doesn't, you know, if it's one of those monkey things, that's great. I had a student who was making uh, 40 bucks a day, um, drawing her own little cartoon dragons. She didn't care. She was like 14 at the time, I believe, and selling them to this company that were, that were turning all of these drawings that she did into NFTs and making thousands upon thousands of dollars from them when they're paying her like 20 bucks for each of these drawings. Yeah. And that kind of goes back to the, the exposure thing always drives me nuts. Mm -hmm that come from big companies, you, you're getting exposure. I probably, and this is, I'm, I'm still on Instagram, but I don't spend as much time on there. I try to limit it um, because 90% of my messages come from influencers <laughs> who are like, we like your work. We'd like to use it. You get exposure bucks. Mm -hmm. Or they, bots or whatever. Yeah. yeah. They're not even real people no. contacting you. Yeah. And it's just, uh, do you fear that in the near future, like 10 years, that artistry is going to further disappear and be replaced by AI interpretations of paintings, videos, music? No. You think it's still going to have that human no, element? No, I, I, I don't. And the reason why is, and this goes back to a previous part of our conversation, but on a completely different topic, it goes back to that kind of pendulum mentality. Um, in the early 1990s, you can read a ton of articles about how digital photography is going to absolutely destroy the photography industry. It will be the worst thing that has ever happened, and film is going away, and now photos can be digitally manipulated, and it is going to ruin it, and there's going to be no creativity. There are these horror articles that happen. 
the same kind of thing happens with the idea of like, no, I do oil painting because acrylic painting, it dries as a plastic and, and it's different and new and we hate it and it's horrible. Human beings evolve. Our tastes evolve. Our ideas evolve. We can have this thing and that thing. We don't need to purposefully regress ourselves to the point where, no, it was much better back then. It will be the world plus this. Gotcha. And it might change a lot. It might change quite a bit. But change is inevitable as humans, as society. It's not, I mean, it's going to happen. I mean, going back, you know, to also to blacksmith, you know, there aren't a lot of those left. And the reason why is we have manufacturing, we have specialization. Well, that once AI gets past this point of, you know, the wild west, when there are folks who are much better at writing copyright laws than I am, sit down and take a look at it and say, you can do this and you can't do that. We're going to take this and we're going to build on top of it and make something better than what it is. Right now, it's at that pendulum part where it sucks, where it's this section that, you know, it's, it's going to be bad, but we can't take the toothpaste and shove it back into the tube at this point. It's already out there. Mm -hmm. The best thing that we can do is take what's present there and utilize it for our own advantage. So what I've been doing, at least with AI, um, and I will never pay for Dolly 3. I'll just sit around on Dolly 2. And um, basically what I've done is if I need, like if somebody says, okay, we need you to do a project for, for us. It needs to look, look like we need to have these elements together, um, to kind of like, and, and give us like about eight or nine different ideas and we're going to pick the best one. Well, for example, uh, I was over at, um, Starbase at SpaceX uh, a little while ago working with the students there and they were talking about designing a dog park there specifically. And they wanted a design for the logo for the dog park. And I was like, okay, Sirius is the dog star. I could do something like that, like that kind of thing. I'm thinking, okay, so in my brain, I'm going, okay, I want a corgi jumping through the cosmos and there's stars and galaxies around them. Now, I could myself draw several of those and come up with several different ideas. Or I can go to Dali 2, type that prompt in, and see what kind of bullshit it comes up with, and then take those ideas that were completely randomized, and I draw each of those compositions. Rather than taking those photographs that something else, you know, stealing from other people, and utilizing those, oh, on this one, the dog is going, jumping vertically up and to the right. On this composition, the dog has already gone through the arc and is now on the descent. On this one, there's a uh, solar system, a uh, spiral galaxy in the upper left-hand corner. On this one, there's a comet going through the lower right. I can utilize that stuff and come up with my own version 
of each of those, using those as a springboard for inspiration. Rather than it being the end-all, be-all, I use it as a tool. We have screwdrivers. We have hammers. You can drive in a screw with a hammer. It's going to take you a really long time. <laughs> we can use a hammer to drive in that screw, or we can take the screwdriver, or we can take the power drill and with a new attachment and work it through. It's the same kind of thing with digital photography. I don't know a lot of people outside of those that are really interested in exploring the chemical and exposure and the uh, enlarger who still do film photography specifically. And if they want to use that phase, if they want to use that exposure, that's great. You know, play around with, with the stop, play around with the light exposure and the size from the enlarger and everything. Do that. That's awesome. That works for you. But digital photography has changed so much and editing software has changed so much that usually when you take a picture, there's a lot of changes that you do with the filters, with the layers and everything like that. There's no reason to not utilize this technology, to not jump on it. Don't worry about it. Make it work for you because it's a machine. It's a technology. It is... It is a thing, and AI is not going to replace creativity. It's going to grab all of these things from different parts of the internet, and if it has hands, it's going to look all messed up. It's going to have way too many fingers, or it's going to look jacked up. Yeah, I've seen those. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're terrible. They're terrible. And the layperson might look at something like that and go, oh, that's beautiful. You know, I can't tell you how many, like, uh, a, a groups I'm a part of that someone will throw up an AI image and people will be like, Oh, that's amazing. Where can I find it? And I'm like, you can't find it. You can't, you know, tell that that's AI. And there are a whole bunch of programs now that, that artists can use to basically throw a monkey wrench into AI, but like any black hat or white hat hacker, it's this idea of, are you, uh, which program's currently better? It's that pendulum swing back and forth, back and forth. Which one's going to be better? Are you going to you going to fight with it? My mentality is don't fight against it. Use it. You know, the when you toss a rock into a a river, it takes a lot of rocks to block the river. Most of the time the ri the river flows a lot easier if it just goes around the stone and has it like river plus stone. You know, it's there now. It may take a little while because it's brand new. But like digital photography in the 1990s, you know, it's not the end-all be-all. It's going to be this plus that. And as humans, we're going to be better for it. And yeah, there's going to be assholes making a lot of money in a short amount of time off of it because that's what assholes do <laughs> to creative people. But if you can take a couple of steps back and look at it from a distance and go, okay, I, I can use this. I can use it in my way to create this new thing that's for me to make my job a little bit easier and not stress about it, then so be it. That that's a very good way of looking at it. You utilize it as another tool in your uh, toolbox of creative 
tools. Mm-hmm. That's I. The only thing I fear is that it gets so good that it takes a lot of the creative aspect out of it, the legwork that some people have to go through to make their art. Mm-hmm. And that's that's the only thing I fear. But the one thing I can say is I don't think you'll ever have an AI that's going to replace the emotion that goes into an artist's work. No, definitely not. And and another aspect, there is there is a there is something to be said about artisan craft. So, for example, you can go to IKEA and you can buy a table, and that table is perfectly good. It's it's going to hold up. It'll last you about five to ten years, and then it's going to fall apart, and you're going to be like, "Oh, I've got this bo- a drawer full of Allen wrenches that I'll never use again." Or you can go to a woodworking store or a carpenter who their job is to make tables and they know them backwards and forwards and they can make you one with a leaf that adjusts and comes out and it's going to be oak. You're going to be spending a good deal of money, way more than you would if you bought it at Ikea, but that thing's going to last you for a long time. And I truly believe that there will always be that call for artisans and that and that need because there are some people who are like no the ikea table is good enough you know I, that's all i need that's all i want but then there are going to be those people that are willing to sit back and go no i want craftsmanship i want skill and i want something personal rather than something mass produced here's something to kind of bounce off on that i always i love going to art shows like the Urban Arts Gallery or, or uh, what do they call the show that they do in the in August? Urban Arts Festival. Urban Arts Festival. <laughs> yeah. Just, really creative. <laughs> there's there. I love going. I love walking around. Mm-hmm. And most of the time I find two artists that impress me. Not to say that the other art's bad. Mm-hmm. It's just I find art is kind of trend orientated mm-hmm. oh um, yeah very much so one of the big trends is like when you go to comic-con or something you see very pretty digitally drawn rendered art of characters it's very like fan art yeah yeah where where people will will take someone else's intellectual property and put their own spin on it yeah yeah mm-hmm. very and i i'm not saying there's there's obviously a market for it and everything well, but i kind of usually definitely. just pass by those booths yeah whatever um, and I remember coming and seeing you at an art show and you were one of the outliers. So we met each other at an art show that we mm-hmm. were both vending at. And I believe it's called your Garish series. That is correct. That is a form of art that you don't see. Ver- I haven't seen it by anyone else. Mm-hmm. What was the creative process? What what made you make this art and, and explain to people who don't have a... We don't, we're not doing a video podcast, yeah, a, so we not can't, a visual media, yeah. But it's <laughs> god, it's like very, it's, it's it's unique. It's called garish because it is really bright neon colors, it's it's intentional, and the subject matter is very in your face. I the portraiture is either really up close, um, sometimes not even a bust, sometimes it's just part of a face. Um, or it is shocking, or it is anatomical, and but it's always very neon, brightly colored. And the reasoning for that is because I use uh, 
I use acrylic, uh, but I mainly use road construction spray paint and um, markers. Uh, road construction that spray. you would just use on yeah the, the kind <laughs> so the kind that uh, you see people doing when. Uh, they need to mark underground cables or something like that where where the nozzle doesn't point out to the side, but it points straight up. Okay. And they're using the marking lines and that kind of thing. The reason why I do that is because it's colors not usually found in those types of media and whatnot. But the other reason why I do that is because the process is unique and cannot be replicated in other in other ways. The funny thing is... When I do shows, people come up and be like, what media is this? What material is it? I straight up tell them. I, you know, at no point have I set, tried to hide, you know, how I do it or the process behind it or anything like that. And when I was still doing social media, I would do like videos to show how, how it works. It's, it's one of those things that uh, it came through completely by accident from me experimenting on materials. Like I, I went to art school and one of the things that... Uh, I don't know if it annoyed my teachers or um, just made them think I was the weird person, but like when we were doing chalk pastel drawings and, you know, you'd, you'd be using the little chalk pastel and you'd use the edge for fine line work or you'd use the side for big areas, I would dip mine in water and crush it and smear it with my hands or something like that. I always like exploring materials and and that kind of thing. So the Garish series came from an exploration of mixed media. And almost all of the artwork that I do now is mixed media in one way or another. It'll be first digitally compiled uh, in sketches. So what I will do is take all of my references and kind of um, Frankenstein them together in Photoshop. And then from there, I will create a drawing of that mass reference that I have then work through the process of usually more wet media first, like the spray paint or uh, watercolor or, or um, gouache or whatever I'm working with, and then more particulate media media on top, like colored pencil or marker or something, something like that. Um, and it's this exploration of media and the stacking of the media that I find really interesting. And it gives a very unique surface to the piece as well. Um, that that you can see in physical media yeah i i look at your garish series like a photo file i almost can literally see the layers like turn them on turn mm -hmm. them off it's it's so interesting I, re I remember when i first seen i think you were showcasing one of your uh stranger things yep. pieces at that show and i was just like oh my god this is awesome oh that took me forever uh <laughs> that one was really long because i did all of the little teeth in the um oh demogorgon uh, yeah in the demogorgon so it, it took a really long time but uh the the cool thing about that at least in my opinion is the underlying spray paint is uv reactive so when you go in with a black light, it's like the posters from the 1960s or 70s, just a lot more detailed in that fashion. So, yeah, it's uh, it's it's been pretty unique as a series. And it's been great because when I was studying for my MFA at 
uh, Savannah College of Art and Design at SCAD. Is MFA Masters of Fine Art? Or? Yeah, Masters okay. of Fine Art. So the the best way, they don't give out doctorates in art. You can't get an art doctorate. It's the capstone. So, gotcha. yeah. Yeah, it sucks. I'm never going to be known as Dr. Brunt. Yeah. <laughs> but, you, you, and master sounds really wrong. Like, <laughs> excuse me, Master Brunt? No, it's just weird. Yeah. Um, but but like uh, I I put those pieces in my thesis. I put some of them in the ones that I had completed during that time, and I had teachers there who were professional illustrators and had been teaching at the collegiate level for years. And so many of them said, "I have never seen anything like that before." And I'm like, "Oh." cool you know it's just that one thing i have discovered something and we are in utah so my my options for selling are limited in regards to shows because there's there's a lot of people that will go to art shows and they'll want like they'll want it's it's an art show but they'll still want something in wood that says live laugh love yeah some stuff like that Mm -hmm. so so the my my sales are limited to a certain number of people going back to, you know, that one dude that was supremely high, like (laughs) that type of person. That's, that's my jam. Uh, those, those are the kind of people that are like, Oh man, I got an album coming out and I want you to use, you know, I want to use your pieces, you know, one of the covers or can you make me, you know, that kind of thing. Um, I recently did a, a piece that was fairly large and the person wanted it for their, uh, what they, what they called their, uh, hydroponic basement. So they are, uh, they are growing a certain type of plant that, uh, would probably not be legal in a number of different locations in this state. And they wanted my piece in that area because you grow them with black light, UV light. So it shows off all the cool stuff in that. So, you know, that's, that's, that's kind of the fans of my artwork. It's not necessarily me. I'm not that type of person myself, but those are the people that like what I create. And I, I just find it really interesting that that's the vibe that I attract. And, yeah. it, it's so true because I, I find myself attracting a certain uh, personality type as well who purchased my art mm-hmm. that I'm like, you guys all are kind of the... <laughs> kind of the same you're all different but they're fitting a niche definitely i like what you said about being in utah being very limiting because i think you're right i think utah is very conservative when it comes to its uh digestion of art they don't just any entertainment yeah Uh, it, it blows my mind the amount of time that i will be driving around theaters in the area and all the theaters are showing are plays of movies that I've already seen and know how it ends, yet they still get a ton of people like, oh, we're going to do Shrek the musical, or (laughs) we're going to do Legally Blonde the musical, or Elf the musical. I'm like, these are at the bargain basement bin at Best Buy. You can get them for like four bucks there, and you want to like pay, you know, way more than that and see the play <laughs> done by non-professionals. This, I mean, but that is the norm here in Utah, where we, where there is an overarching sense of simple. I, I call it macaroni and cheese theater because it is like comfort food 
for these folks. It's something that they know. They know how it ends. So they're comfy and everything's nice. They're going to get their blanket and, you know, and just go to see something that they already know how it ends. And it's not going to risk anything. Yeah, I, I've had the um, pleasure to travel to a lot of different states. Uh, and I always try and make it a um, point to go into a museum in the different states because I love how different states present different oh, yeah. subject matter. Yeah. And always to try and make it into one art gallery. Mm-hmm. And we got one art gallery here that is uh, very... Um, open-minded and I, yeah. I would say that's the urban arts gallery oh, yeah. is that still yeah. in the gateway yeah it's still okay. in the gateway yeah but every other like if you go up to park city that's just uh oh no you know everyone's yeah. like oh that's that's the artsy fartsy no. place in your time like no that's the very generic no that you know, that's the kind of thing that you're gonna see like that's that's what rich people who like ski uh, <laughs> that's what they buy <laughs> that's what they buy it's the it's the same kind of thing it's like you know it and all of them are so similar to one another too. Mm-hmm. I mean, like it's very rare that you will find like it's it's disheartening at times when you go to different galleries in the area. And I live in Ogden, and there are some galleries that are on Washington Avenue that you can walk in and you have you have an idea of what you're going to see the moment you step in. Yep. And all of them are in that same type of vibe. And I understand that there is there is a call in this state for old white guys who paint Indians and cowboys. I totally get that. <laughs> but it seems like there is it, there there is a purveyance of those types of galleries in this section where it's like the same thing over and over. Like when you go to um to Arizona and you see the the same turquoise type jewelry in every single gallery. There isn't a lot of change in it. And, you know, one of the things I will never open a gallery of my work in Utah and think I'm going to make money. It's not going to happen. If that ha- I mean, if that's the case, I'm going to go to California. I'm going to go to New York. I'm going to go to Florida. I'm going to go where the stoners are because those that's where the, you know, the, the people that are high that have, I mean, that's where I'm going to go. Maybe, maybe Colorado. There's a few stoners in Colorado, <laughs> but it's, it, you go to those places where your, your artwork's going to do well. And unfortunately that's not wholly the case for me here. Uh, I understand at least that, that. At least that, that, um, that series. And I've got a couple that I do, but that series especially. Are you still um, actively creating your own art currently, or are you more focused in your professional life matter? Uh, it depends on the day. Um, it's one of those things when when I have a moment, I'll shift. Uh, I'll shift gears and I'll I'll go in a different direction. Um, in my uh, in my graduate studies, I was working on a card game that I have about there, there are going to be 102 cards in that. Uh, and I want to say 
52 unique designs on those, and I'm up to about 38 with those. But the illustrations that I'm doing for that are like two feet by three feet. I mean, it's they're, they're not small. Yes, they're going to go on cards, and it might be an act of, uh, of futility for me to make them that big when they're going to get shrunk down that much. But it's something that I keep coming back to. Um, like when I mentioned the mural uh, recently for Discovery Gateway, periodically I'll get pieces like that. But I like to think that my art, oh, that sounds pretentious, my art. <laughs> um, I like to think that my art is encompassing of more than just the things that I make for myself. They're also the things that I make for clients. And because if I if I just keep in that pretentious circle of I'm only going to create stuff for me, I'm never going to grow as a person. So yes, I'll take those side jobs and side gigs and, and it influences and, and changes things up. And uh, you know, this uh, this mural has a great deal of potential, but also I love the uh, the opportunity to work with other people who may ask for something new or something different that I haven't thought to create before. Is working on a mural of this size a daunting task to you? Have you ever worked on something this large? I've I've worked uh, I've worked on things that are not as tall. So two stories is a bit high, but they have like a pneumatic lift that I'm going to be able to use and that kind of, I'm not going to be like rickety on a, on a step ladder or something like that. I, that was my first question. I'm like, hi, I'm, uh, I'm agoraphobic and <laughs> I really do not want to get up, you know, two stories on a ladder, you know, little giant, uh, ladder right underneath me. No, yeah. uh, no, they got the pneumatic thing, but yeah, I've done, um, I did a mural for my kids, uh, daycare, uh, to supplement the cost of, of spending money at the daycare. I kind of like, you know, they had a blank wall. I had time over the summer and I'm like, Hey, could I do this for you? And it be some of the money that I would normally pay you to watch my children. Dude, that's During, sweet. Yeah. So that worked out. Um, and then I did one for UTA that is, uh, as far as I understand is still in the, uh, bus stop that is in front of uh, Payson hospital down there. Um, and I did another one, uh, which was more of a, of a supervisory kind of position. Um, with a student at uh, Starbase uh, this past summer, I was um, I was kind of guiding her, and it was the uh, kind of kids area that they have for the people who live on Starbase directly. Uh, Where's that at? Is that down in uh, Boca Chica, Texas? Okay, yeah. So it's like right on the cusp. It's where the uh, latest um, SpaceX uh, shuttle exploded. You know, they've had two so far. Both have exploded. It was the latest one. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, hey. Omelets, eggs. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, I was fortunate enough to uh, work on the Utah Women 2020 that's in downtown Salt Lake as well. I was a very small part of that. But yeah, that was that was another mural that I took part in. So that's I was really one cool. of the only dudes that worked on that. I think it was like me and one other guy and it was all women because it's a it's a mural celebrating women. Um, and Kim and I saw that they were looking for people to help out with it. And we both jumped at the chance and they were actually it, this was through the Urban Arts Gallery at the time. And like everybody that we were sitting with, the person that's in charge, uh, 
uh, Jan Hayworth, who uh, also coincidentally um, was a part of the design of the uh, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band album cover. Um, she did the, she did the mural. She oversaw the mural and, but I was like one of the only guys to participate in that, but it was a really cool experience. So yeah, I've done a number of murals before and this one's big, but, uh, all the more reason to do it. Now tell me really quick, you just got the opportunity to travel to a destination that I is on my bucket list. You yeah. went down to Antarctica. Yeah, totally. Totally. How did you get to do this? So, uh, I work for, um, besides the school district that I work for, I also work for, um, art, uh, CEO kids and company, which is, uh, a online learning opportunity, um, for, for students. We run art, young art and art cadets and a, a number of other different programs doing, th- doing lessons online. And we partnered with, uh, <clears throat> a group from Australia called UpSchool. And basically they provide absolutely free educational, um, learning sequences for, for educators, for homeschool kids all over the place. And they're based in Australia. Uh, the guy who is their head curriculum writer, uh, Gavin McCormick is really well known in world educational circles. Um, not around America, but he's a British guy who lives currently in Australia and, uh, I got to travel with his team. I was the only yank as they say. Um, and I flew from, uh, from Salt Lake to LA and then from LA down to, um, Buenos Aires. And once there took a very rickety plane, uh, down to Ushuaia, which is the very bottom of Argentina. And it's where our ship left. We were on, um, we were on one of, we were on this ship called the Greg Mortimer and it was, uh, through Aurora. Um, and it was basically a, uh, expedition cruise and I traveled with Gavin as well as his film crew and uh, a photographer and uh, if they need somebody I know somebody so I will tell them hey uh, (laughs) I know I know a guy if you need a photographer Um, and basically we went on a two-week cruise uh, going to all of the islands around Antarctica uh, which was um uh, it was the Falklands, it was uh, South Georgia, and a number of the different islands. We had one landing on the continent itself, um, much to the chagrin of all of the people that are uh, flat earthers. Uh, the continent does exist. It's not an ice wall. <laughs> I've been there. Um, and uh, it, it, was, it was just amazing. It was um, the best way I can describe it is especially South Georgia was what I imagine Eden would be because you could get within five meters of seals of sea lions of, um, elephant seals of penguins all of these different animals and they had no knowledge of human beings because the only people that go down there are people on these expeditions 
or they are scientists. The only military that is allowed within the Antarctic Circle at this point are, are scientists and uh, no active military weaponry is allowed into the Antarctic Circle. It is completely devoid of any type of military presence outside of scientific. Wow. And none of these animals have any fear of human beings and will like straight up walk right up to you and look you dead in the eyes. They don't have any fear or anything like that. That were probably why they were so easily hunted um, previously. But at this point, they are that part of the world is so protected. And I saw things there and experienced things that were just amazing and life-changing. And the people that I traveled with, the grand majority of people, because some of them were uh, retirees and very wealthy people who were just like there on a trip. Mm-hmm. And, um, but a lot of the people that we spoke to, uh, the environmentalists and uh, naturalists and that kind of thing that were either guiding the expeditions or avidly a part of the process were incredibly passionate about that area and conserving nature. And it was really eye-opening as to our small, our being humans, our small part in the wide earth and how it would be when we aren't here anymore and how like the world will shake us off like a bad case of fleas cities will tumble uh life will come back and animals will be cool and you know we're here temporarily wow it really puts things in perspective yeah i I can only imagine that's i've always wanted to venture down there because i feel like it's one of the last places on earth that has not succumbed to commercial and corporate influence because yes piece of ice you know well it's so much more than that you well go, but you go past the, past the art and and most people if you show them a map of antarctica you know they're they're familiar with it as being that big white blob on the bottom but mm-hmm. if you show them what it actually looks like the shape of it and that kind of thing as seen from a different perspective it's so different and with the arctic circle and and or the antarctic circle yes yeah i gotta say it correctly um there's so much more involved with it so it's so deeper than that and one of the great things about traveling with the aurora expeditions specifically is we got to see just some amazing sites Um, and all of the lessons and all of the work that i did is actually up on the upschool website currently upschool.co and it's absolutely free for anybody who wants to take a look uh and they're great lessons for kids they're written specifically for like uh uh, younger elementary to about sixth grade tops and Gavin is incredibly entertaining. So uh, the the stuff that we did there is in two lessons called the power of one specifically and that's the main Antarctica lesson and then we were also uh, fortunate enough to travel with uh, Dr. Karl Kaczynski who is like the uh, he's the Australian version of Mr. Wizard or Bill Nye, the science guy is the best way I can describe him. So um, we did another set of lessons with him because he was very gracious with his time uh, to do the solar system and beyond. So we did two groups of lessons for one one expedition. And we're talking about going to uh, Greenland next oh, dude, or, or like um, 
uh, or Norway or that area. So that'll be awesome, man. You've experienced so much through your life attributed, I would believe to your love for art and what you've poured into it. You're also a father. Yes. You have two children, one who just recently graduated. Yeah, graduated high school. Yep. What are your hopes and aspirations for your children growing up in this crazy world? Um, well, uh, my son, uh, full disclosure, is autism spectrum. And he has a number of challenges that not everybody is going to face. And he experiences the world very differently than... Um, traditionally uh, neurotypical folks is the best way to describe it. So, but, but he has also done things currently in his life that his mother and I never thought he would be capable of doing. So things that may be secondary nature to you or I are much greater challenges for him and therefore much greater successes. And we need to be aware. And I admittedly, I wasn't uh, earlier in life. We need to be aware that not everybody is experiencing life the same way we are and will have different challenges than we do. So for him to have a steady job, that he is dedicated to, that he goes to every day, that he doesn't need us to police him in that fashion, that he gets up, that he goes down to the bus stop and takes the bus to his job every day and covers shifts for other people. That is, that is something that is a very strong and positive occurrence for him that gives him a good sense of contributing to society in general. And it's, it's something that we're very thankful for that he has had that opportunity that he finds joy in that, that he finds, you know, it, it, he has a job that might not be for everybody that might, you know, might be something that, um, some people might even look down upon, but it is something that, is incredibly valuable to him and he is really good at it and we you know try to encourage him at that my daughter is very similar to me to me in how she tackles life and she just wrapped up her volleyball season where she was gone for numerous nights really late she is taking a number of advanced placement or college, uh, not college, excuse me, um, or honors level courses. And she's stressing out and working like a ton. But I just want the two of them to find a place in which they can find happiness. The world is too broad and too bright to uh, pigeonhole them into one thing or another. I just want them to be able to experience what they want to experience, go out and enjoy their life because we're here for such a short time. Hell yeah. I think that's awesome. Do you yourself, um, because your children are coming of the age of adulthood, um, is that a weird transition in your life as well? Looking at now my kids are coming to the place where they can 
semi-quasi take care of themselves for the most part. Makes me feel old. Does it? <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's pretty much it, you know, like like that. But uh, both Kim and I, my wife and I, have a really good relationship with our kids. Um, even though they are both teenagers, one is 18, one is 15. She's going to be 16 here real soon. Oh, driving the car soon, huh? Yeah, yeah, that's the case. <laughs> um, it's a, We have a very open bit of communication. And so, for, for example, um, my daughter's turning 16, and one of the things that she really wanted to do was get, get her septum pierced, that little like middle part in the, uh, in the center of your nose that comes down and joins your lip. And my first reaction was, you're going to look like a bull. <laughs> <laughs> and my wife had a much better conceptualization of it. And we talked about it at length and that kind of thing. We, we took her to the piercing studio together because, you know, she's she's underage. You need to make sure that, you know, they have all of the paperwork and, you know, you have your ID and their birth certificate and everything like that. You know, you're copacetic. You're cool with it. And it's all going through. And she was so excited for that and to get that. And, and that was like she went to school the next day and her friend was talking her up and everything like that about like, oh, it's so cool. It's awesome. You know, I can't believe your parents let you do that. And every ounce of my years teaching high school told me, let her have this little thing down at the bottom of her nose. Because if you're one of those parents who's like, no, you're not getting that while you're in my house, you know, kind of thing. And then the moment she turns 18, she's going to get out. She's going to go out. She's going to get it done and then she's going to get a whole bunch of other, you know, she's going to set off the metal detector walking through at the airport or something <laughs> like that with her face. And you, you pick your battles, you pick your battles, you let your kids have a little bit of freedom. And even if you don't necessarily agree with it, or you think it's going to um, be not, not right for you. You give them that little bit of freedom and you support them so that you can grow that relationship and let them grow into the people that they are going to be and let them grow into that person that they're going to be with you rather than in opposition to you. Yeah, I, um, I've had the pleasure to see you interact with your children multiple times because we've vended at shows together and your kids have always been... Uh, supportive of your art. Yeah, or... they follow me along. It's crazy. Mm -hmm. You know, they actually want to hang out with me. It's weird. Yeah, and just <laughs> even in your own home, um, I've seen, and I've always really respected your and Kimberly's way you guys parent because you guys are very, you parent in a way where you can tell your kids respect you, they respect your opinion, but you also don't, you don't use this like, power grab thing like that some parents use you will not do it because it's under yeah, my roof yeah. you guys are just you're respectful of your kids and understand that they are individuals mm -hmm. and but you guide them as well from what i've yeah. seen and i think a lot of parents either they, there's there's a no happy medium no either some no. parents let their kids do whatever they want and others are way too stringent. And I think you guys have found a very happy medium with well, that. We're not, uh, uh, we're not their friends. We, you can't be their friends as a parent. 
you you have to be somebody that that they respect and that respect is earned it has to be earned it's not freely given not for a kid you need to you need to be there to the point where you can let them know what your expectations are but in that same regard your expectations should be matched with reason so for example yesterday was thanksgiving there is a lot of work that goes into thanksgiving especially when you're having guests over and you have to do the mad dash to clean because you know you usually don't live like you uh you present to when guests come over there's usually like a mad dash in the beginning and to to make things all presentable because we we put up those errors everybody does and one of the things that i spoke to them both about because we we have family out here mm-hmm. um but we don't see them very often um and my family is nowhere near here so we had two friends come over um one friend that i have had for pretty much as long as we've lived out here and their partner and um both of them uh kendall really appreciates uh to talk to and we that's pretty much it when it comes to thanksgiving at our place and we i I made a point to talk to both of them uh and say hey this is this is the holiday you know it's usually you know i understand that you're off from school and work and you know all that other stuff for right now but especially for the preparation time when we're getting things ready either wednesday night or when mom's cooking during the day on thursday because i help i prep but i'm not you know she is so much better at cooking than i am i <laughs> i don't try to touch that with a 10-foot cattle prod because <laughs> i do it incorrectly um but i tell them you know what really means a lot to her is that you help her out and make this a part of you know that it's a family thing rather than being on your devices or that kind of thing i could go in and you know say i'm gonna shut off your phone or turn off the wi-fi in the entire house and nobody gets it kind of thing or i can come up to my kids and say hey this is really important to your mom this one time frame if you guys can help her even by just like doing dishes or setting the table or chopping vegetables or something like that just that little bit of effort will mean a lot to her you know and and i think giving an explanation and stating it as such rather than yelling or putting in an ultimatum gives a greater connection with the kids and it shows them that you trust their instincts and their intellect to get to be on the same page with you. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Well, that's awesome. I'm, did you have a good Thanksgiving with your family and everything? Yeah, it was good. It Dude. was good. We haven't we haven't seen uh, the two of our friends, uh, Dusty and Lauren, for quite some time. Um, Dusty has actually been on tour with Les Miserables. Uh, they... Uh, are an IOTC uh, worker. So they do lighting and stage technician and everything like that. And they've been all over the West Coast and, and stuff like that. So it's it was really great to see them. Dude, that that's so cool. That's, that's the one really good thing about the holidays is reconnecting with uh, friends that 
and you can just pick up like it was, oh, you know, yesterday. Totally. And like I haven't seen you in what, two years? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, just about, man. And it's just, you know, it's it's crazy. It's nice to blend back in. Definitely. No, no kidding. Well, hey, Jordan, I want to just say I've always had a high amount of respect and regard for you, your craft and what you bring to this world. You're a very unique individual. And I want to thank you very much for coming on the podcast and kind of sharing a little bit about your story with me and everyone that listens. I appreciate your time. Thanks a lot. Okay. We'll catch you guys all later. Remember, be happy, humble, and humorous out there and treat each other nicely this holiday season. We'll catch you on the next one. (laughs) 